Dear Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for this beautiful morning and for our chance to be awake and healthy and alive and present in this room, Father, to hear Your Spirit teach us. Father, I also thank You for the provision of Oak Hill Bible Church, a small community, Father, but earnest in their following of You and of their desire to know You better. Uh, Perhaps limited in their number, Father, but mighty in their purpose and desire to serve You. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would continue in the work that You have done here over the years, that in the years to come, this church would continue to be a beacon in the town that needs light. And uh, on this side of Austin, Father, a church that would minister to the needs of so many who are nearby and yet so far from You. Father, I pray that uh, as we go into Your Word this morning, we could be equipped for that very purpose. That the Word, Father, would do its work first in us to mold us into Your image. And then secondly, Father, You would drive us out from this place ready to serve You in many ways and to bring the news to others and that we would be ready with our defense for those who would ask for the hope that is within us. And Lord, I pray that this morning Your teaching would come from me but be by You and according to Your glory and will. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, if you were to gauge what people want to hear on a given Sunday when they come to church by what you see going on in the church generally across the globe, and you watch what gains listeners, you know, what gets people in the door, trials, persecution, and suffering would not be high on the list. More likely, they'd be looking for a message about how to be rich, how to be famous, how to be healthy, how to be liked, how to be received well, how to feel comfortable with who I am, the way I am. There's a lot of messages out there in churches of one kind or another that play to our flesh, right? They, they play to our pride and our own desires and they tickle our ears. What you don't hear done very often is a teaching on trial, on suffering, on the privilege, on the blessing of suffering for the name of Christ. I want you to look real briefly with me at a verse we've covered already. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Look at how we began in that very first verse of this book. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Remember we covered this, but think about it again as we go back into the text today, that Peter sets up this whole section by stating, because Christ has suffered, set your mind on the same purpose. How do you make your purpose to suffer for Christ? Well, he's going to give us some more background on that very point today as we go into the chapter and finish it, starting in verse 12 where we left off. I want you to keep that thought in the back of your mind, though, that it is, in fact, the calling of a Christian in some level, in some sense, to be prepared and even willing and even desiring an opportunity to suffer for Christ's sake. Look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify in this name. Well, let's pause there. There's some challenging verses to start our morning, is there not? As I said, this is not a popular topic in the church today. But let me tell you why I think it's not popular. You and I would probably assume it's not popular because who wants to hear about things we don't like? And there's some truth in that, certainly. But I will tell you that if I were to travel right now to Christians living in Saudi Arabia or Christians living in Iran or in other 
areas around the world, places where the gospel is not well received and where Christians themselves are not well received. And I were to hang a sign out saying, tomorrow, guest speaker, the subject, suffering for Christ, I'd pack the room. I absolutely know that the room would be packed with Christians who are experiencing suffering in every day of their, of their life as they go about ministering in that part of the world. So it's not that the issue is unpopular because we don't like to hear about bad things. It's because to our world today in the West, it's irrelevant. The church today really has little to, in the Western culture to identify with when it comes to the issue of suffering. For the sake of Christ, I mean. And yet it is such a prominent theme in the New Testament epistles. And here it is today in front of us. It will consume our attention this evening. Peter's writing to a group who were either already or were soon about to be killed for their faith. Burned at the stake was the common way, or taken to the Colosseum and thrown to lions was the other common way, in Peter's day, to the readers who received this letter in its original day. He's not talking here about mild inconvenience, mild annoyance, a little rejection from your friends. What he's talking about here is truly suffering in like manner to the way Christ himself suffered, for the same purpose that he suffered, for the chance to bring the truth of God's love into a world who does not know him and does not care to know him. That's suffering. Now, we don't have that in our world today in the Western culture, particularly in the United States, and we can all let out a sigh of relief and say, well, that's a good thing. Let me challenge you on that. Let me challenge you only on the sen- in the sense that well, I want you to look at what the text is going to take us through today and rethink your assumption that it's a good thing that our church is not suffering for the sake of Christ in the way Peter is talking about here. And let's look at what he's asking us to do. First, he starts in verse 12 by saying, don't be surprised when you encounter these trials. These trials he's talking about here, let's be specific, he's talking about persecution that comes in a physical form, even martyrdom, for the sake of Christ's name. And I think he even adds a bit of sarcasm here, if you saw it with me in that verse, when he ends by saying, it's not as though some strange thing is happening to you when you suffer for the name of Christ. He's talking to Christians, he begins with this term beloved, and he says, don't be surprised. Would you be surprised? Let me put you in the, the situation of where Peter's readers would have been in in their day. If in the midst of my talk this morning, that door was thrust open and policemen walked in. And I don't want you to have some kind of Steven Spielberg silly idea of how this takes place with angry villagers and you know, burning uh, torches coming down your street at night. We're talking about realistic things that happened in their day. And similarly, what would it be if it happened today? What would be realistic today? A policeman, a squad car pulls up, they come in, they handcuff you, they read you your rights, they take you to prison. Then they put you on death row, and then they kill you in legal means according to the law, and they do it for no reason other than you are a Christian. Would you be surprised if that happened? Honestly, of course you would. Of course you would be surprised. That is not what we would expect to see happen. He says here, fiery trials. Fiery here, the word in the Greek is pyrosis. It's a word from which you can go into the Latin and find the word for purify. It's a sense here not of just burning for the sake of destruction, but burning for the sake of purification, for purifying. So I would argue the word here describes not just the purpose of the trial, but also the manner. That it was, in fact, Peter's intent to plant in their minds this image of what was happening to the Christians in their day. Remember Roman candles? We talked about that here a few weeks back. We get the term Roman candle which we now associate with the fun of Fourth of July, we get it from what Nero did to Christians, where he would take Christians and put them on a stake and set them in the ground around his palace at night, burn them alive, and use them as light for his parties. That's what a Roman candle was. That's what he's referring to. 
He's saying, don't be surprised if that happens to you. You should not be surprised. How can he say this? How can I turn to you today and say, you know, from what I read in Scripture, you and I should not be surprised if that door breaks down and someone comes in, takes you off and kills you for your faith. You look at me and you say, but that's not my experience. We don't experience that. We've never seen that in our lifetimes. How can we not be surprised? Well, I want you to think about what was going on in Peter's day. In our day, we're not surprised because, for one thing, we live in a country where there is rule of law. Where we have a governmental system of law that says you cannot be denied certain rights without due process. That says we have certain rights that are guaranteed, like freedom of religion, for example. We trust in those things, right? So that's why we wouldn't be surprised. Furthermore, we don't have a history of this happening in our, in our church in this country, not in any time we can remember. There hasn't been a history of people going outside the law and killing Christians for their faith. That's not a common thing in our experience. We live in a culture that is largely pluralistic when it comes to religion. People may not love Christians, but they certainly tolerate them along with any other flavor of religion you can come up with. And we sort of mix and meld together without as much conflict as you might imagine. We're pluralistic in that sense. So when you add the law, the culture, and our history, and you put it all together, you're surprised at the prospect that tomorrow something could change and we could be killed for our faith. Well, I want you to understand, I didn't just describe the United States. I just described the Roman Empire. Did you realize that? Did you realize, for example, the Roman Empire had as much, if not more, history in their law and in their government for the protection of individual rights than we do today? In fact, our law is built in part on the Roman law and on English law, which itself is derived from Roman law. The Romans had a very strict system for government and for adjudicating uh, crime. You had to have, before a criminal could be brought, and, and brought into prison and put under chains, there had to be an indictment. That indictment had to be signed by the governor, by the procreator. By, in the case of Jesus' day, it would have been by Pontius Pilate. That indictment then had to be followed by a trial with at least two witnesses. And if the witnesses weren't present, you were going to be found not guilty. And if you were found guilty, you had an appeals process. Why did Paul have the opportunity to be taken to Roman chains? Because he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And once he raised that issue, they had no hope but to bring him to Rome. That's how the law was followed. It was very strict. Secondly, they had a very pluralistic culture. The term you'd actually use to describe the Roman culture was syncretism. Syncretism. And it really does, it means something like pluralism, but it's different. You take a bunch of religions and you bring them all together and you meld them. So in other words, if you want to worship Jesus, that's fine. Let's just take him and add him to the pantheon of gods and we'll worship him along with the rest. So it's a melding of gods. So they weren't particularly threatened by the Christian viewpoint. They simply added it to the existing menu of, of uh, options within their culture. And then finally, historically, the Roman culture had not persecuted others, other faiths generally. As long as you were subjugated to their authority, paid your taxes, kept the peace, they really didn't care what you did. Now, yes, they expected you to honor Caesar, but you didn't have to go into your local place of worship and put a bust of Caesar in there and worship it. That started under Nero. Prior to Nero, there was a great deal of tolerance as long as you kept the peace and paid your taxes. Sound familiar? So what Peter is talking about right now is a change to the very nature and culture of these people, no different than today. Honestly, you could take his letter and take it home and read it for yourself right now and receive it in much the same frame of mind as those who saw it in its original day. Fiery ordeal, ordeals? I mean, where is this coming from, Peter? Why should I be that worried? And you're telling me not to be surprised? Yeah, he's saying don't be surprised. Don't be caught off. Persecution is not a strange thing historically for the church. 
You and I happen to have grown up in a day and an age when it is unusual. But we're not better off for it. And that doesn't mean it's not coming back. What it means is we have for a time seen historically something unusual. A period of time when the church itself in the West has been largely untouched by the government, largely left alone. But when was the last time you can think of persecution in the church? Only at the foundation of our country. Why did the pilgrims come to, to, on the Mayflower in the first place? To escape religious persecution. The point is that while you and I don't have a history of persecution, we only have to become students of history to understand that it is, in fact, the common experience of the church. And he says, don't be surprised, don't be off guard. Because if you are surprised by something, you tend to act the wrong way when it shows up. Look at his second principle. And there's about six or seven as we go through the passages today. His second principle is, these trials come upon us as a test. As a test. You remember how Peter began the letter again? Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he himself started his letter with this same principle. That these trials that they were enduring, if for a little while, were for the purpose of establishing proof of their faith. Remember the word purosis? Purify. When I talk about establishing proof of your faith, do you ever have in the back of your mind a thought that says, well, proof? Why do I need proof? I'm here, aren't I? You ever heard the adage that you can sit in a garage, but that doesn't mean you're a car? You ever heard that? You can sit in a church your whole life. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. Anyone can walk through that door. Did, did anybody ask you for your Christian card when you walked in? No, and nor should we. But my point is, we don't know who's a Christian or who's not in this room right now. You should know by your own heart. You should know by the Holy Spirit testifying with your spirit as to who you are. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to understand there is a biblical principle that says, test to see if you are in the faith, to know if you are of the faith. The imagery here that Paul is using, or Peter is using, is one the Bible uses a lot. The imagery here is of refining precious metal. Refining precious metal. I don't know if you've all had much opportunity to get into metallurgy. That's not a very common uh, trade anymore these days, certainly. But in the case of refining metal ore, the process is pretty simple. It's been going on for centuries. You take iron ore out of the ground, which is uh, a bunch of different materials mixed together. You've got different metals. You've got dirt. You've got uh, rocks, like, for example, granite. You've got all kinds of materials mixed together. I've got to separate them out somehow so that I get down to just the precious material I want. So I heat it up. And when I heat it up, things melt. And as they melt and mix together, they separate. And if I do it in the right way, at the right temperature, etc., I can eventually melt everything that's in that ore and begin to remove the things that are not good from the things that are good. Let me give you an example of how the Bible explains this very same process but now in a spiritual context. In Ezekiel, chapter 22, God is talking to the nation of Israel about, about their sin, about the fact that they have walked and strayed from Him. And this is what He says through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 22, verse 16. He says, You will profane yourself in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. You know what dross is? 
let's say you're trying to find silver. If you heat up all that iron ore, the things that are not silver are dross. And the way you get rid of it is as it heats up, much of it will come to the surface because the heavier metals sink. And so you find the light stuff showing up on the surface and you skim it off. Throw it away. Heat up some more. Skim off the rest. Throw it away. That's the dross of silver. God through Ezekiel describes to the nation of Israel them as a people, as a group of people that are bronze and tin and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. All of those other metals are not the precious metal that you want. Silver is the precious metal. He says they're all dross. And look what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, therefore, I'm going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin in the furnace, talking about iron ore, he says, to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, I will lay you there and melt you. Ooh, that doesn't sound good, does it? You don't want to be in that group. He says, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Now, why do you smelt something like iron ore? To destroy it? Well, clearly not. There's no point in that. To remove the impurities, yes. Likewise, God did not pour out his wrath on the nation of Israel so as to destroy them. His point is always to refine them. There were within the assembly of the nation of Israel unbelievers, Jew by birth, but not by faith. And as God saw that lived out in the nation of Israel, he said, I'm going to burn you up. You're the dross. I'm going to remove you from the assembly of Israel so that the remnant can shine through. And he's done that time and time again. And he's currently doing it with the nation of Israel now. They are currently at a time in their history where they are being allowed to fallow while God gives his attention to the Gentile nations. But there is a day to come, Paul says, when he will return his attention to the nation of Israel. He will put them under the crucible of, of his wrath of the time of tribulation. And that will purify them back to the point where as a nation he can return to them as he has promised to do. That is a day yet to come. This spoke of a day in their past, but the process is the same. Now take it to the church today. How is it we would know if we are of the faith? If this church were to go undergo persecution, if that door were to open up and the policeman were to come in here and say, anyone who is a Christian is going to the death row, is going to death row in Huntsville, the rest of you who are not a Christian, go ahead and leave, what do you think the effect would be on this group? If you'll travel to Saudi Arabia, for example, or if you'll travel to Iran, where the church is not received well, where it has to remain underground, you won't find many people come into the building and say, you know, this looks like fun. I'll hang around for a while. I'll just make this part of my lifestyle. I'll become a cultural Christian. There's no benefit in doing that. They've only put themselves and their family at great peril. And therefore, absent a true heartfelt call by the Holy Spirit, there is no fleshly reason for them to join that group, and none will. It's one of the purest churches you'll ever see, where every man, woman, and child in that room is drawn by the Holy Spirit because there's zero reason to be there otherwise. That's the power of testing as God applies it to the church in one sense, in the sense of calling away the unbeliever. I think if you look at the church today, and I mean this again corporately, and I think it's especially true in the Western church, to include Western Europe, it's the weakest it may have ever been. And weak in this sense, a hollow kind of weakness, the outside looks pretty good, nice big shell, big rooms, big buildings, big everything. But then when you kind of peel it away and you look on the inside, there's not much there. Hardly any depth, hardly any maturity, hardly any lived out life of service in the body, 
hardly any radical changes in priority or decision-making or finances. It's all just the world, but with a veneer of Christianity. That's the church. If you know your book of Revelation, you know that God prophesied through the letters to the seven churches that there would be seven phases to the way His church would experience existence from the beginning of its foundation in the church uh, of Ephesus all the way to the end of the life of the church in Laodicea, as represented by Laodicea. But in that last church, the church at Laodicea, the last of the seven letters, there is a picture in Jesus' description and his comments to that church. There is a picture of what the church will look like in the last days, in the days immediately before Christ's return. And what you look at when you look at that church is a church that received not a single commendation and only condemnation from Jesus. A church where he had nothing good to say, only bad things to say. It's a church made up largely of unbelievers. It is a lukewarm church that he says, I will spit out of my mouth. I will vomit you out, he says. There's a remnant, but it's only a remnant. And that the visible church is nothing more than a facade for the unbelieving world who has come into our midst and taken over. Now, am I describing this building or the one down the street or any given one? I wouldn't know. This is a principle, not an application for an individual body. But because it is a principle, we need to be wary of it. We need to be conscious of it. We need to understand that testing gives opportunity for the church to see that evidence in its own body and to, and to reconcile with it. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 13, verse 5. He says to the church there, he says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, he says. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? That's a challenge. That's a man writing to a church who by its lifestyle had drawn questions as to whether or not they were really believers. You do all these things? Do you know the Lord I know? And then that's the third, that brings us to the third basis for testing. That God may use the testing process even for the believer as a means of getting rid of that dross. We call it sanctification. I put you under the crucible of circumstance, of a trial of some kind. And then in the midst of that, you know what happens? What happens to someone who's put in a really high-pressure-packed situation? Does it bring out the best in them or the worst? In my experience, it brings out the worst. You know, the person who's got a short temper, put them in a situation where it's high-pressure and things are going bad. you got a person who is, uh, worries too much, put them in a situation where things aren't going the way they planned and watch the worry come out. That's what God will do to His church for our benefit, is to put us in circumstances where life ain't roses. And because of that, what comes to the surface under the hot pressure cooker of life is the dross. And when it comes to the surface, He scrapes it away. How does He scrape it away? By conviction. By the Holy Spirit convicting us. You know, when you snapped back at that person in your anger, that was an unkind thing to do. Repent and seek forgiveness. You know, when you got worried about how God was going to provide for you, you went out and charged a bunch of stuff on your credit card rather than waiting for God to provide. Now you know better. Repent of that. Correct it. Don't take that road the next time. That's the sanctification process. It doesn't happen when we sit in a pew every day and hear just good news. It doesn't happen every day when we go and have a job that pays out exactly what we want every day and everything works well. I mean, life does not change us when it doesn't bring the dross to the surface. And God loves us too much, as the saying goes, to leave us where He found us. And so there is to be in the Christian's walk an experience of trial and suffering on a personal basis. And through God's Word, through the Holy Spirit convicting us, we will come to understand those things that need to be scraped away. He'll do the work. He just asks us to partner with Him and identify and understand that He's at work in that way. 
Moving into the text further, the third principle he brings up about suffering here is that we are to identify with Christ in His suffering. This is challenging to a culture that wants an identity of self, isn't it? When you came to the Lord in Christ, you no longer have a personal identity. The only identity you carry into the world outside this building that is of any value or worth to God is the one you carry in Christ's name. Your identity is Christ's identity. To the extent you live that way, you have value to God and His purpose. To the extent you suppress that and decide it's all about me, then you're just still living for self. And he says that in our suffering, as it comes upon us, for the name of Christ, we can identify with Him. You you put somebody in a situation where life is really difficult, war is the classic example, and there's a natural identification with the, the, the soldier with one another. On the basis of shared experience, you immediately have a connection with somebody. And I think that's part of what Peter is saying here. That we would identify with Christ better if we share in His suffering for the same purpose, that is, for the name of Christ, for the name of the Gospel. If we have been targeted by the enemy, then that's proof that the enemy sees us in allegiance with Christ. If the enemy thinks enough of us that he would try to bring trial and suffering upon us, and by God's will it's allowed... That is an encouragement in that it's proof that we can identify in Christ not just in experience, but also in namesake, that we're on the same team. It's like Philippians. Paul says it best, I guess, in Philippians verse 27 of chapter 1. He says this, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says this. He says, In no way... Be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. And he's speaking here about those who would persecute them. He says, but rather, their behavior against you is proof, he says, of your own salvation. By virtue of the fact that it gives evidence that the enemy, working through the sons of disobedience, is attacking the children of God. You see evidence in that. Some people often say, if you live a life as a Christian and don't experience suffering, something's wrong. Either you're doing a darn good job of hiding who you are in Christ so that persecution never has a reason to take hold, or you're not a child of God. His fourth principle, verse 14, he says, when we are reviled for Jesus' sake, we are blessed. The word reviled here just literally means a verbal insult of some kind. So when you're verbally insulted, you're blessed. How does that work? How many of you have ever had, in your own personal experience, somebody verbally insult you because you're a Christian? A handful, right? Now, maybe some of you just didn't want to raise your hand, but I'm guessing that's actually pretty accurate. I'm guessing that, for the most part, we don't have an experience in our memory of somebody staring us in the face and verbally accosting us because of our faith. Peter says, when that insult does come, though, because we believe in Christ, consider it a blessing. Now, that's paradoxical, right? We don't quite understand how that works. Peter clarifies what he means by that when he says, because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon us. What does he mean that the Holy Spirit rests on us or rests in us? Well, I want you to consider the following scriptures. You'll get your answer just by listening to these three different scripture verses. Romans 8.14 For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then 1 John 3, verse 1, He says, 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Let me draw the line between those three dots. On the one hand, what's the definition of a Christian? It's a good question, right? Someone who goes to church? No. Someone who was baptized as an infant? No. Someone who was baptized as an adult? No. A Christian is anyone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. How are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart. Yes, there are things you do. Those other things I mentioned, those might be the how. So, number one, you are a Christian if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Number two, the Spirit himself will testify with our spirit that we are children of God. Testify. It's an outward expression. Once you are a believer, you have the Spirit of God in you. His whole purpose in being there is to seal you for the day of redemption and to be a witness for the world that you are a Christian. You will, for that point forward, have inwardly a light shining outwardly. So you will be visible to the world as a Christian. All right, so let's put those two together. All Christians are visible through the Holy Spirit. And yet, as John says, what? The world will reject us because it first rejected Christ. Here's where the do not be surprised part comes in. If you are a Christian, why would you be surprised if you are visibly echoing the gospel by your nature, by the Holy Spirit in you, that that would result, result in the world looking upon you and saying, we hate you? Well, yeah, because the devil rules the world and the devil hated Christ before he hated us. It's the natural expectation, not the unnatural. It's the expected thing, not the surprise. But it's a surprise here and now because for some reason, in God's own design, the church has found itself in a lull where even those who would be outwardly visible as a Christian don't, for the most part, suffer persecution. And we are worse off for it. Do you know the two periods of time historically when the church grew the most, statistically, or, or I guess you'd say proportionally, percentage-wise? The early church that was persecuted under Nero and the Reformation church that was persecuted after Luther. Those two periods in human history, of the church history, co coincide with the two fastest-growing periods of church growth. Now, you talk to growth gurus today, church growth experts today, they would never prescribe persecution as the means to grow the church, would they? It would be the opposite. Give people what they want to hear. That would grow the church. Oh, it'll grow all right. Who shows up? Not those who are led by the Spirit of God, unfortunately. When we have the Spirit, we're made children. When we are children, we shine with the Father's love. When we show that love, the world hates us because it hated Him first. That's the principle. Now, in case any of us, or any of Peter's readers for that matter, were tempted to take this rule and try to reverse it, and to assume, well, okay, if that's how it works, Steve, if that's how it works, Peter, then I just need to go out of this room right now with a plan to gain as many insults as I possibly can, to, to irritate as many people as I possibly can, and get persecuted up and down, one side or the other, left and right, everywhere I go, and the more of that I do, the better off I am. Well, Peter has that same concern... And he quickly adds in verse 15, his fifth principle. In verse 15, he says, You cannot suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, which is a general term for any who would be lawless, or as a troublesome meddler. Now, I don't know about you, but I was doing really good up until that very last one. I thought for sure, murderer, thief, evildoer, I'm good. Troublesome meddler. I'm not sure I haven't delved into that on occasion, right? Troublesome meddler here, the word in the Greek, it just means one, I love the definition, one who meddles in things that are alien to his calling. Meddling in things that are alien to your calling. So what he's saying is you cannot take this principle and reverse it. 
Even though a believer can take encouragement in suffering for Christ and, and see it as proof of their faith, as evidence that the world has stamped you as a believer, you cannot turn around and say, well, therefore, all suffering is proof that I am of faith. And therefore, all suffering is a blessing. No, suffering for doing the wrong thing is suffering that we deserve and you can't take any pleasure in it or confidence in it. And you certainly shouldn't seek it. No, it's when we suffer, as he puts it here in verse 16, as a Christian. That's his sixth principle. The, the word here in the New Testament is actually very rare. It's only here in Peter's letter. And then you hear it a couple times in Acts where you hear that the Christians, for example, at Antioch were the first to take the term Christian. It's not a very common term. But the irony is, it's not a complimentary term either. In Peter's day, it was a slur. In Peter's day, it was a term that unbelievers came up with to use as a slur against the Christian. It was a word they made up and started using as a way of maligning those who followed the way. Those who followed the Messiah. They were Christians. You know what the word is, right? In its literal sense, it means a little Christ. What we're saying there is, you're like this executed criminal, only you're little. You're even less significant than he was. You're like pretending you're, as, you're pretending you were important enough for Rome to even want to kill you. And Peter says, don't be ashamed of that term. Don't be ashamed of it. In the text we've read already, he says, not only do you not be ashamed of that term, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify, look how he ends it, glorify God in this name. What Peter just said that they should do is that they should turn that wounded feeling, that, that, that momentary disappointment of being insulted that way, and glorify God for it. Glorify God for having been called that term. Thanking God that they would be blessed to be counted among those who know the Lord. Think about it on a wide-scale basis, though. And now you have the dilemma of, do I want to be rich, successful, and popular, or do I want to be a Christian? Do I want to be accepted or rejected? Do I want to be able to do commerce, or do I want to be uh, put in a position where no one will do business with me? And Peter's saying, don't just accept it, glorify in it. We just don't have a, we have a tough time, I think, identifying with how that would be for us today. Look further in the text as we finish up the chapter. He says, verse 17, For it is time for judgment... To begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. He says, judgment begins with the household of God. As a believer, aren't we to escape judgment? Yes, He's not talking about our eternal judgment. It is God's decision, His judgment, that the church itself would experience suffering, experience the persecution that comes upon it first. That that is God's purview. That in this time as we sit right now, is the church under pressure. And historically, it's been that way. Peter says, we are to identify with Christ in our suffering for His name's sake, and that that judgment begins first with the church. It is God's purpose and plan that the first group of those in the world to receive any kind of persecution, judgment, recompense, if you will, is the church. That is God's will. That is God's direction. That is His intent. Paul says it this way in Philippians, again, in the end of chapter 1. He says, listen to verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 
Have you ever thought about it that way? You, it's been granted to you to believe. Praise the Lord. It's also been granted to you to suffer. Can you say praise the Lord as much after that one? That's what he's saying. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying that God in His wisdom decided you would suffer before those who are unbelievers. But there's an argument here from lesser to greater being made in the text. He says, you get it first, yes, but you get this. And it's for your benefit. It's for the intent to refine you, to purify you, both as a congregation and as an individual. And so that you may identify with Christ and appreciate what He went through for your sake. So that you might understand the war that is taking place in this world. That there is an enemy. And that that enemy truly does hate the Lord, hate Christ, and anyone who associates with Him. So that you can appreciate all of that you have suffering in your life. Perhaps. But then to the unbeliever who might escape life without suffering, who might live in a palace, who might have wealth unimaginable, who might have anything they ever wanted their entire life, there is a day appointed for their death and after that comes judgment. And the judgment for the unbeliever is eternal. And the judgment for the unbeliever far exceeds anything we might experience in our walk here today. And that judgment happens at the same time as our glorification. At a point in our life where all that negative suffering ends forever. And Peter is putting those two in context so that you could understand that the testing that we experience is for a time that is short and for good purpose and it has nothing in comparison to what the unbeliever will one day experience. As I end today, look at what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. This is a church that was known for persecution. They were famous for it. In fact, if you know some of the comments that Paul makes in his second letter to that church, he addresses the nature of the rapture and he addresses the nature of the the end times and of the coming of the Antichrist. Why does he get into all of that with the church at Thessalonica? Because they were so worried by their persecution, they thought that maybe they were actually in the tribulation. It was so intense for them, they were starting to think that maybe they missed the rapture and they're stuck on earth in the middle of the tribulation and they obviously don't like that prospect. So Paul writes a letter to say, don't worry, you're not in the tribulation. This is just normal. This is what the church will experience. This is what he says to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, though, verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you for one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain, listen to this, this is a plain indication. What is a plain indication? The growth of their perseverance and faith in the midst of their afflictions, he says, is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. You hear the the juxtapositioning there? I love the way he starts though. He says, look at you guys. You're suffering terribly. And yet, what are you seeing amongst you? Tremendous increase in faith. Tremendous increase in perseverance. There's a tremendous work going on in your body. You're better Christians. 
And then he says in verse 5, this is plain indication of God's righteous judgment. God clearly knows what he's doing, in other words. That he brought, judge, he brought this persecution on the church and you're better off for it. Just look at yourselves and you'll recognize that. That's what Paul says to this church. Then he goes on to make the obvious point that Peter's just made. He says, look, God is just to bring you this affliction now, in part to benefit you and in part to assure the judgment of those who are doing the affliction as evidence against them at trial, if you will. And then in their day of judgment, they will have their recompense. It's all part of a plan that God is working out masterfully. You win now, you win later. If we end today, I want you to understand verse 19, Peter makes what I think is the most profound conclusion of the whole chapter, and it will lead us directly into next week's teaching. Next week's teaching is on leadership. If you scan ahead into chapter 5, he ends the letter to this church talking about who their leaders should be, what their leaders should do, and how they should rule over that church. Interesting, isn't it? That we'll end there. But in the meantime, he, he segues into a discussion of leadership at the very last verse. In verse 19, he says, those who have been ordained to suffer for doing what's right, those who would believe in Christ or those who are a child of God, those who would shine that light in this dark world and receive persecution for it, he says, we have been appointed to suffer for good reasons and we must be prepared to trust God to know what he's doing. At the end of chapter 4, verse 19, he says, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Hey, do you trust him to save you? Did you agree to the gospel? Did you believe and receive it because you trust that when you die, God will raise you as he's promised to do so? You go to your grave believing that promise, right? You don't doubt it. You don't one day wake up and think, I wonder if he's going to back out on that promise. I wonder if I've trusted in the wrong God. If you're willing to trust him for that, then why wouldn't you be willing to trust him in the meantime for what he does in your life every day between now and then? Are you saying you can trust him to raise you from the dead, but you're not so sure he's got his act together when he brings suffering or persecution into your life? That something's amiss? That if only he would have listened to your prayer? Look, what Peter says here is if you trust him enough for, his, for, for the offer of salvation, then you have no basis. I have no basis to sit back in the meantime and say, well, yeah, I trust you for that, but I don't know if this is right. It's all right. He's sovereign. He's made a decision before you were born, before the foundations of the earth were laid, to call you into faith and make you a child of God. He's already got a plan. And when suffering comes, I'm not going to have a question in my mind about what my response will be. I'm not going to have a question in my mind about what I'm prepared to do after they drag me away or wherever it leads, right? No different than Paul was in his day, Peter certainly. Remember, Peter was the guy crucified upside down. The point is, if you're not surprised and if I'm not surprised, let come what will. Trust God as the creator to bring the right thing at the right time. And if it includes persecution, understand there are seven principles in the text we just read that says it is for our benefit, it is to our own growth, to our own blessedness, that it would come, so long as we don't shirk back from it and treat it as something we have to avoid. Look, that's not a message the church is going to embrace today. It's not a message you're going to see plastered on the billboards. But you know what? When the, when the end does come, whether it's next year, next decade, next century, in this community and in this culture, what do you think the church is going to do in the face of that? Do you think it's going to fall away? Paul described it happening in the second letter to Thessalonica. He said that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will not be revealed to the world until there is the falling away, the apostasia. The falling away. What would prompt the falling away? Persecution. 
But in that even there is a blessing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer next week. As I said, we will be finishing First Peter, looking at leadership and celebrating Easter Sunday in that way. And I think it's appropriate given uh, how Peter has drawn us to that point in this letter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we end. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I pray we would have in our hearts an understanding of the blessedness of persecution, a, prepar- a preparation, Father, in our lives to experience it if it be Your will. Not to invite it by our own mistakes, but simply, Father, to be ready to accept it if that be Your chosen course. And Father, though I, in some sense, can't bring myself to, to mean it in all respects because I am a man and I am not capable of understanding Your thoughts, Nevertheless, I know by Your Word I am to pray for persecution. I am to pray for testing, Father. You tell us in Your Word, pray to be tested. I know it is necessary, Father, so that we may know the chaff from the wheat. I know it is necessary so that in our own walk, Father, we would be sure that we are worthy of the kingdom. Not by works, but by faith. And we, we, Therefore, we pray this morning, Father, that if it be Your will, that the church might undergo a cleansing, a purification that though we may not understand it, and we certainly don't look forward to it, Father, we understand that in the eternal realm, it pays dividends. And Lord, if it be Your will, we would like to come back next week and continue in our study and in the weeks to come in this church, Father, to gather under Your name. May that be the case. We praise You and thank You for this morning. Send us out of here, Father, with a heart to serve. In Jesus' name, Amen.